You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. So, uh, some of you guys know my story. I, I didn't grow up in church. Uh, I grew up um, kind of a Christmas and Easter uh, Catholic uh, kid. Uh, I was never part of, you know, wearing the robes or the altar boy thing, and I never even, like, took First Communion. I would, like, argue with the priest most of the time about why... Uh, just God was silly, and it was just something that we made up, you know, as, as humans. And, um, and so, yeah, the Lord really got a hold of my heart. In high school, I was part of a program called Flirt to Convert. It's a 401c3 that uh, Cairo was a part of. She raised support for that. And uh, here I am. Here I am today. I don't know how I ended up here, uh, you know. But, um, but I quickly got involved uh, with worship, not because I loved worship, but because I loved music. And uh, I used to learn all the little Dave Matthews songs on the guitar, like Satellite and Crash. I'm a 90s kid, obviously. And so showing my cards, good or bad or ugly. Uh, my number 41 is my favorite, if you, have, if you have to ask my favorite Dave Matthews song. So anyways, I quickly decided that uh, if I wanted to be Dave Matthews in church, I would just get up there and play the acoustic guitar. And it couldn't be any different from, you know, playing Dave Matthews, you know. And so um, I was drawn to bands like Jars of Clay early on, uh, Third Day, um, they had, a, they had good concept songs, you know, like that special song that they would play and you just think about it during communion or something like that. We, didn't, we weren't singers back then, certainly in youth group. We would just kind of sing whatever was cool and sounded good. Uh, and I don't think I could have told you back then the difference between kind of like uniting a room and song. There's something, you know, euphoric. There's something emotional about getting around the campfire and singing songs together that's very uniting and soothing and, and, and nice. Um, it wasn't until I started going to new community, uh, the Thursday night service, that um, the Lord really captured my heart in worship. And I remember before, you know, it was like, gosh, I don't want to raise my hands in this place. It's just a weird thing. Did I put deodorant on? Like, the whole process of, like, singing was just awkward for me if I didn't think that the song was cool or if I didn't register with it and so forth. But New Community, this, this service that they had for two hours on Thursday was something that just drastically changed my whole perspective. Because the songs themselves were not made to sound like secular songs. The songs themselves were less about what we like to sing. They were more around the question of what would God want to hear. The lyrics of the songs were less about, you know, me and more about him. And I began to, to feel and sense, you know, just by, I would say, the work of the Lord and by the work of the Holy Spirit in growing me like worship uh, became something um, that less and less put my eyes on me and helped me process my thoughts and feelings and more and more helped me put my eyes on Jesus. And that was just a, a miracle. It was a breakthrough moment, I think, for me. And instead of waiting and looking at my watch for the song to get over for the sermon to get started, I couldn't wait to get into worship, and I just didn't want ever worship to end. And so I don't know if you've ever experienced that kind of presence before, that kind of power before, but worship, worship is an anointing, and um, it is a designated thing that the, the Lord has given his church to come before him with joy and songs and thanksgiving. If we were to look um, at worship and, and step away from it from a moment, like to think about what we do on Sunday mornings, um, worship I heard a Stephanie Gretzinger song called Worship is Connection. So there's so much going on in worship, like what we're doing a few moments ago, if we're available to it. Worship is connection. It's a time when we're brought into his presence, into the inner courts. Uh, Worship is a place where altars happen. Worship is a place where power happens. Worship is a place where we can come empty. And in many places, we could have gone to Chick-fil-A. We could have gone to uh, our phone. We could have gone to a friend. And maybe we would come away empty half the time. But in worship, if we have encountered the presence, like Jesus has never touched anyone and left them poor, right? So worship is about experiencing presence and experiencing power. But if you actually do want to like really get to the core of worship and you look at the Bible, uh, the crux of worship is actually not connection. 
uh, it's not presence even, and it's not power. The crux of worship, the center of worship, is sacrifice. Like we know we've worshipped when there's been sacrifice. That's how the Bible would want to define worship for us. Because there's plenty of people that were in Jesus' presence, right? There's plenty of people that experienced like what it was like to see his smile in his, in his day when he walked the earth. There's plenty of people that experienced his power. Plenty of people that received healing. There's plenty of people that, um, that talked to him, that prayed with him. Like I would say worship, musical worship is, is musical conversation. That's, what, that's what the way you'd really define it. Oh, that's really long, so we just say we worship. But worship's not just on Sundays, right? And worship's not just singing. And you can sing songs without sacrifice. And so worship is, is connection, it has connection, it has presence, it has power, but at its crux, worship has not happened until the person in Jesus' presence, marked by his power, is moved to sacrifice, is moved to give up something lesser in the, in the presence of something greater. So let's look at some passages from the Old Testament first and then the New Testament. 2 Chronicles seven twelve, the, um, the initiation... Uh, uh, and, the, and the ground, you know, the cutting of the, of, of, of the, cutting of the, the rope to open up the tabernacle. Um, the Lord says, uh, he says to Solomon, he says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices, for laying down less to the greater, the lesser thing to the greater thing. Second, second verse, Psalm 50, 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Not as his song, or a song of sacrifice, but the essence of it is, is sacrifice. Um, there's so many in the, in the Bible. Psalm 141, obviously the Psalms, a lot of these will refer to the Psalms. But let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Into the new, uh, or, and of course, one of the probably more, most like landmark um, typifying verse that, 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 that discusses what it means to worship in terms of the way that David, probably one of the greatest you know, worshipers, the one that was after God's own heart who wrote the lion's share of all the Psalms in our Bible. Uh, 2 Samuel 24, 24, David has this interaction with this king, and he, the, the king replied uh, to uh, Aranah, this, this character in the Bible. David says, no, I insist on paying for this thing that I'm going to sacrifice. He says, I will not sacrifice the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Let me not give the Lord something. Let me not come into his presence experience his power, talk to him, and then turn around and not sacrifice. Let me not waste that moment because the whole encounter is, is geared towards sacrifice. So let me not, you know, sit down at the table, order the steak, and then walk away. Like, that's, that's not the point. The point is to come into his presence that we might lay down the lesser for the greater. And, of course, the landmark passage in, in the New Testament is Romans 12.1. That's what discusses what pure sacrifice is today. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, this is what Paul says in the book of Romans, as the proper response to everything that you would ever believe in Romans. If you believe in Romans, then you'll know you believe it because this is how you're going to respond to it. You're going to take your day and you're going to offer your day as a living sacrifice. Not just in, not just in song, not just in presence, not just in prayer and in power. Worship is not essentially just connection, it's sacrifice. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of students in the room, or medical students, and they'll tell you, um, studying to be a doctor is sacrifice. It's opportunity costs, right? Like, there's relationships to be lost there. There's dating opportunities to be lost. Like, there's years and pain and sweat. and Like, that is, is a picture of sacrifice. 
And so potentially you're using medicine to go out into the mission field and, and, and to fulfill a calling that God has put on your heart. But ultimately speaking, that is a form of worship, like what we are doing when it hurts, when we, when, when we walk through the fire and, we, and, and we, want, we need relief. That's where worship is happening. When you are a mom, you know all about sacrifice. He's speaking to us and connecting that experience with worship because he's saying we're worshiping where sacrifice begins where it hurts, where it means I can't sleep. I want to sleep, but I can't. I want to engage in my, in my career, but I can't. I want to have friends, and I want to be unisolated. I want to have community and connection, but I'm laying this down, the lesser for the greater. What's happening? We are, we are worshiping. We're elevating one thing above another. That's really where worship is. Worship is not just song. It's not just connection. The long hours at work for men, what we do when, when we are you know, pressing, burning both ends in the, of, of the candle. Why are we doing that? What is it that, that probably isn't even a paycheck that, that puts us to that altar and gives more than the pound of flesh required? What is it that's happening there? We're elevating something. There is some sort of exchange or interaction happening. And so, ultimately speaking, when we are worshiping, we are not just sacrificing our stuff, we're sacrificing ourself. We're putting ourself, ultimately, on the offer, altar because we are worshipers. And we are designed to evaluate things and explain what's better and what's lesser. And then when we discover what is greater, the only natural response is to take what we have in our hand that's lesser and give it to the greater. What else could a mother do if they find a child, right? Then live, then give up the lesser for the greater. So this is what pure sacrifice would be. This is how we would operate and think about worship. And so Abraham is going to, in this passage, Genesis 22, if you want to open there, we're going through the series in Genesis, and this is one of the latter chapters that we're going to see an engagement with Abraham. Abraham is going to be asked to give the ultimate sacrifice. He's going to be asked to give his son. And this is what an English teacher or a Bible teacher would tell you is an archetypal limit. You know what that means? It means like you couldn't think of something more extreme than this. Because if you asked a mother or a father, most of them, like what's the greatest thing that you could sacrifice is your life. But probably for most parents, what's even beyond that? The life of your child. So he's taken this thing to the limit, and he wants to test Abraham and really test our heart as we're brought to bear on the pages of this passage, where's the limit of what he would ask, and where's the limit of what you would bring, because that's what worship is. He's going to bring it to the limit. Now, on top of being an archetypal limit, it's also a narrative dilemma, because we're told in the pages of Scripture, we are supposed to, above all things, trust in the character and the promises of God as our compass. But this passage puts into challenge those two things. Because God is asking for a child sacrifice, which he abhors, talks about in his law, child sacrifice. He does not require child sacrifice, yet he's asking for it. And killing Isaac would be the ending of the great promise of many stars in the sky, because he is the only descendant Abraham has. He is the promised child. So in one fell swoop, this limit has brought to bear high stakes. What will happen to Abraham, and what will happen to us when we are called to a high-stakes sacrifice that conflicts with who he says he is and what he says he's doing on the earth. Have you ever been in a place where you are in a circumstance where he's calling you to do something, and the circumstance seems to oppose the very nature of who God is and the very nature of what his purpose is on the earth? This is where we're at. So, Genesis 22, verse 1, Sometime later, God tests Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and Abraham responds, Here I am. So that's Samuel, right? Do you guys know Samuel? When Samuel is consecrated, he's called in the temple. Here I am. What does that mean? It means the full faith person. That's the full faith answer. Here I am. 
It's not just like, oh, yeah, I'm in Greenville. You know, call me if you need me. It's like, I'm here. I'm whatever you want to do. I'm an open space. Like, what do you want to do? That's, this is the full, mature version of Abraham from Genesis 12 to 22. He's a different man. This is his response. Here I am. God says in verse 2, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. So you got a couple things in your register there. Number one, this is the full faith version. He is not only, uh, he's not an enemy of God. He's not even an acquaintance of God. He's full of faith, and the Bible says that Abraham is a friend of God. And we've been watching his journey, and we should be asking ourselves, how did he get to the here I am? Because this is where he is leading all of us to the here I am. With every only one and only job and one and only son and one and only child and one and only spouse. Like, this is where he's leading us to the here I am moment. And he is called to an unthinkable sacrifice by an intimately familiar voice. So this is, the, again, the, the archetypal limit. This is the limit to which any human being could be asked to be sacrificing. But he's asked by a voice he knows. Go to the place I will show you. And so at the end of the day, Abraham is being asked to engage in the mechanism of his life that he has always been doing, which is always leaving the place he is to go to the place that God is showing him. That is, that is his MO. That is his reputation with God. This is, if he knows anything about God, this is familiar. So he's, he's brought to the edge of a, an unthinkable sacrifice by a familiar voice. Have you ever been to this place before? So we think of faith as, as Indiana Jones, and we think that faith is the last second shot in the game, and we shoot it, and it goes in, and the crowd goes wild, and there's been no preparation. We just get put in the game, and I wonder if he can make the shot. So we just stand at the edge, and we're like, God's just, just going to wait for him, and then all of a sudden, 2080 or whatever, you know, when I'm 125 like Abraham, I'm just going to step off, and there it is. But that's not what it is, is it? Because the familiar voice has always been calling him that way. It's always been calling him in Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 through 22. And it's been the same voice through the famine. It's been the same voice in conflict with the Philistines, with the little wars that he fought to rescue Lot. It's been the same voice that he's heard as he priests and prays and intercedes for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, this is the voice he's always known. And so actually, contrary to popular belief, faith, Christianity, faith is not blind jumping. It is a lifetime of built trust. It is trusting the voice you heard to go to the next place he's calling you. And so Abraham is put in this dire situation, but I don't believe that he would have been tested because God tests those he trusts and he tests those he knows that can pass the test. And God's not testing him in Genesis 12 the way he's testing him in Genesis 22. So here he is, and he's been called by this voice. And so here's this altar that's before him. And it's familiar because he's been in altars like this before. And that's why it's so significant. This is where it ties in for us this morning between worship. Because this is not just a test. Like he didn't just say throw Isaac off a cliff. He says bring Isaac to the place to be a burnt offering. So this is a passage that is not only talking to us about faith, but it's also talking about worship and why worship is connected to faith because they're, they're connected. If you look at the stories, this is, this is the familiar voice, the familiar pattern of go from the place that you are to the place you are going. And in between each step of the way, faith step, Abraham is brought to altars of worship, to places of sacrifice. Worship is not just singing. Worship is where you are being unmade by God to be made up again in him. The reason why you have to leave the place that you are in to go to the place he's going is because for you to be made a friend of God, you have to be unmade in the place that you last were. So maybe it's the long car ride home, right, on Thanksgiving. And I don't know, what are you, 25? And um, maybe someone passed away. Maybe there's a different family dynamic. 
Maybe people are just, you're thinking differently about something, about politics, or maybe you're thinking differently about faith, and your parents are treating you differently, and there is a, there is a change moment happening. There's an altar moment for you. And that's where worship is happening because the altar is the place that you leave the place that you are to go to the next place you're supposed to be going. And here's the crux of the altar. The altar becomes, what will I leave? What will I take with me? And where am I going next? And if we don't come to those altars, and especially if we come to those altars and we confront another God, another idol other than Jesus, we will be unmade and remade in a different image than him. But those are the moments. Mark the script, right? That's what he's saying is that at each one of these moments, at the tree of Mamre, at the last desert of Beersheba when he built the well, in between the faith steps, in between the faith steps are worship moments. They're altar moments and they're points of decision. The trees are points of decision. The wells are points of decision. At every single point, he has been made a friend of God, not by a blind Indiana Jones leap of faith, but by altars in between the moments. And so I want you to think about that as we continue on, but where's the altar right now for you? You have, you, you have a system of belief you have an attitude, you have a value set in your marriage that's not working anymore. And the reason why people stay 16 and they're 45 is because they don't ever come to the altar. And they don't let go of what they had, even if it was good, to be remade and to carry what he has for you. So where's the altar? And what will you bring to the altar? And what's the limit of your sacrifice at the altar? Because he's not actually trying to take from you at the altar, he's trying to give to you. And so at the moment of the, the, the big fight with the spouse, that's not an accident. That's two values colliding. And there it is, a crux, a, cru- a, a crucible. It is a decision point to decide at the altar. What are you going to lay down and what are you going to pick up? That's worship. That's where worship is happening. And worship is essential for faith because he's not just changing Abraham's location. He's changing his character. He's changing who he is. And if we don't allow God to get into our heart and don't allow God to call us to these sacrifices, don't allow him to call the bad and the good, the past and the future, we will never lay down where we are to go to the place he's calling us to go. It is essential that we leave because if we don't leave, we can never go. So this is the familiar voice and unthinkable test. How long does it take Abraham to respond, to be faithful, to say yes? Verse three, early the next morning, as soon as he possibly could. This is a friend of God here. The highest test, the greatest altar. He is up the next morning. Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then come back to you. So if you read those passages, some of you guys might have fallen asleep still early. It's a slow passage. There's a lot that goes on. What, my son? We have a lot of questions. Son, who are you calling? What do you mean? Like, what are you? There's a lot of questions. He doesn't, he's cold calculated straight to the point. One through three. This is what it's about. This is the curriculum. Then it goes to th- verse three. And the walking out of what God has called slows down. Now we're in four verses. And all we got is a donkey and a couple servants. And it's painstaking. Like the writers know what they're doing. And they're bringing through a process. What does it feel like to pick up wood that you're about to put your son on? What does it feel like to put that on the donkey? What does it feel like to set out a map to go kill your son? What does that feel like to a human? I mean, you probably know because you've probably been there before. What does it feel like to, to get diagnosed with a, with a disease? And it's not Jesus take the wheel, is it? Like, faith isn't just like, I'm going to go to sleep and just put my little dream on the shelf and sort of like let God do it while I'm asleep. 
you've got to go drive to the doctor's office and you don't know what's going to happen, right? So we know it's a test and yeah, it's like we want to relieve the tension. Oh, Abraham, just chill, dude. It's just a test. Well, you're in a test. How does it feel, right? You've got to drive to the thing. You've got to pray. You've got to ask for people how they're going to pray and what do you believe about healing and if he answers the prayer or not. You've got to walk through that. That doesn't, just because you know it's a test doesn't mean you don't have to, you know, reckon with the feeling of putting the, the thing on the altar. You are in an unyoked relationship, like an unequally yoked relationship. It's not good. He's not just going to, the guy's not just going to disappear. You've got to pick up the phone. You actually have to think about what you're going to say. And maybe you'll say the wrong thing. And so this is it. Like, faith is not a Jesus take the wheel. Faith is active. It is not passive. It is meeting with mentors, it is reading books, it is asking questions, it is failing, it's looking stupid. There is no faith outside of practice. There's no faith outside of action. Faith is explained by action as the only terms that we see faith looking like on the highest stakes, on the highest level, will you come to the altar? And on the highest altar, will you, will you lay down the sacrifice, lay down the lesser for the greater? Or will you sell the inheritance for something less? That, that becomes the, the question, the crux. And so... Um, as a practical note, you know, like, uh, the reason why I think oftentimes we don't know the land we're going to until we start taking steps is because if you were to reflect and, reflect and look at the scriptures, like, oftentimes the steps are contingent on each other. Like, step two doesn't actually happen until you fully step into and understand step one. Like, you, you can't, like your, your prayers are motivated and mobilized if you were to have a, a death, a life-threatening disease by the phone call the doctor gave you. So you have to call the doctor first. Otherwise, you don't know how to pray. So this is the point. It's like it's not just the destination, it's the journey. And if we had a journey without having to know, or if we had the destination, the journey at hand, we wouldn't have to come to the altar every time and lay down because he's not just moving us along the plot. He's changing us as a character. He's changing us from the inside out. And so every step, every step is is the seed of the next step. Every step is contingent on the next one, and step one is needed for step two, and step two is needed for step three. And so here's my point. If you are a, what is it, point, like a type A personality, and you need to know all the steps, maybe this is a tough passage for you. I think it's a tough passage for all of us, but if it's a, you're super planned out, it's like the passage is telling us that all you're required to do today is just take the next one. Like, this is what I think the language of faith is, is to take the next time. How, how does a Genesis 12 Abraham get to Genesis 22? And the answer is one step and one altar at a time. You can't take step two yet because you haven't taken step one. So maybe the consolation for us, especially if we're plan A, and I think we're all in that boat together, is just take the next step. If you could picture what obedience would look like for the next 10 minutes, don't worry about the next 20. Just do 10 minutes of obedience. What's the next step? Because here's the thing, it's too much for you to think about all steps A through Z or chapter 12 through you can Imagine telling Abraham, here's what you're going to do, and then you're going to sacrifice your son, and then you're going to go to Mamre, and then you're going to build this well. It's too much. It's too much for anybody. So just take that. So just, and listen, here's my, my guess, is that if you were to take 10 minutes of obedience, just when this service ends at 11, you take 10 minutes of obedience, my guess is he's going to so provide for you and meet you because of that. There's so much power in saying yes that that next step will be ready. And so we are. We're not taking 22 steps. We're taking one step at a time. And I just want to encourage you, whatever that is, just take the next step. Just read the next book. Make the next call. Make the next text message. The, 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 step, the, the step number two is hidden in step number one. If you take step number one, if you're a step one person, step two will be in your favor. The wind will be at your back in step two. The momentum will be there. Ten minutes. Just say ten minutes of obedience. 
And then you can say, well, if I don't want to be obedient after 10 minutes and for the 20th minute, then maybe that's, maybe that's the only test you had today. But take one step, maybe, is, is the thing. So here it is. We know as the, from, from the reader, what Abraham doesn't, we know he's being tested. Abraham doesn't know what the heck's going on. But what we, what we fill in with narrative text, Abraham is filled in with faith. He, he doesn't know what's ahead, but he can carry along like us and root for the same size, side of us as the protagonist because he is filling in what we know from the scripture with his faith. And here's what he knows about his faith. He knows that God is not a child sacrificer and God is not a promise breaker. He knows the character of his God. And even though his circumstance is telling him otherwise that God is not good and that his promises are not perfect, he is trusting in what he believes about his, his Yahweh rather than the circumstances around him. He believes that God is not a child sacrificer and God is not a promise breaker. This is what Hebrews would tell us, getting inside the head and the heart of Abraham in chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was not about to sacrifice his one and only son. His promise was that his generations would be like the sand on the sea, or sure, that his, you know, he'd have a great nation, that he'd have a great name, and God cannot go back on it. He can't change his mind. He can't go back on his promises. He's the everlasting God, as Abraham commended to himself just a chapter before. So he knows that his one and only son will prevail. He doesn't know how, but he does know who. And, he, and that who is, is trustworthy to his character, trustworthy to his promises. So verse 18, even though God had said to him, even though the circumstances seem this way, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Verse 19, so this is, this is the point. It's not an Indiana Jones step. Faith is reasoning. Faith is more logical. It's saying there were 500 eyewitnesses to a resurrected Jesus. It's saying that there's nothing historical that has ever countered what God, it's like faith outside of this room is like what you do when you're dumb. But faith is not dumb. Faith is actually logical. It is reasoning. It is, I believe, that he took me from 12 to 13 and 13 to 14, and now on Genesis 22, he's not going to stop being good, and he's not going to stop fulfilling his promises. So I'm not basing my faith on just what I want. I'm basing it on truth. This is the truest truth there is. So he's saying, I'm reasoning that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. He's not even seen it happen and he believes it. Because if you can make a barren womb come to life and have a baby, then why couldn't you resurrect? This is where Abraham's faith is. He believes that God is not a child sacrificer and he's not a a promise breaker. And he is saying, either that promise is going to take me up this hill, Mount Moriah, and it's either going to lead to the substitution of my son or the resurrection of my son, because there's no other two ways about it. There's only two ways up this hill. That's why he says at the very end of the verse, if you go back to uh, where we are, Genesis 22, look at what he says. Verse 5, he says to the servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go up. He says, it ain't going to be just one coming back. How does he know that? He didn't read the end of the story. You can't, did you, he's not Marty McFly. Verse 5, we will worship and we coming back because he will provide. He is a promise keeper. He is a son, he sacrificed his own son. He is a provider. He is not a promise breaker. This is what Abraham believes, even when his circumstances say otherwise. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham says, and he's not not sweating, right? Like, 
He isn't a robot. He's freaking out. He's, I'm bawling if I'm Abraham right now. Well, Leo's like, You're gonna, why is there a fire, Dad? Like, why do you have a knife? It's not a good feeling, right, as a dad. So I'm not saying he's not sweating. He's just choosing to trust in the fear. He's choosing faith over fear. Not in the absence, but over it. And Abraham says, what we've seen his actions believe, God will provide. Even the word uh, Mariah, like the mountain, it means to see, like to see to it. I'll see to it that this thing will get done. This is the, 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 the faithfulness that, 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 God, that Abraham is putting his, his, hedges, his, hedges his bets on. Verse 8, Abraham says, God himself will provide for a lamb for the burnt offering of my son. And the two of them went on together. So Abraham, in the face of great circumstantial trauma, and also great historical tendencies, is believing that his God is not like any of the other gods. Because it was not uncommon for gods to demand child sacrifice. It's not uncommon for gods to demand the firstborn as a way of fertility. It's not uncommon for gods to demand grain at the beginning of the season. It's not uncommon for gods to demand sacrifices, because gods are gods and people are people. But what Abraham is essentially aligning his steps with, and his faith, and his belief with, is that God's not like other gods. Because unlike every other God, unlike every other God who expects that people bring the sacrifice, God is the one who brings the sacrifice for his people. You see this bold claim that he is making, in a sense, it's saying that true worship is actually not people bringing sacrifices to God, but it's him bringing sacrifices on our behalf. It's a revolutionary... He's saying that we don't bring the sacrifice when we come to worship in a space like this. He's saying he brings the worship, or he brings the sacrifice. He brings the burnt offering. He brings the sacrifice for worship. This is an incredible claim that he is about to make for his son. He's putting a lot on that claim. And so, don't, don't, don't remove yourself from the story. We don't have these different pagan shrines and, and things, but we have plenty of idols in our country that will demand a pound of flesh out of you. Demand for perfection. You know, like... you. you the, 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 the pace that we live as, an America, as Americans, the pressure to keep up, the pressure to be perfect, the, 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 the sweat and the toil that's asked for 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 hours at work, like the, the idols in our country are no less real than in Canaan, and they are asking for no less flesh and blood from us. They are demanding flesh and blood. And Abraham is making a strong and bold statement. He is saying that, that in true worship, the only one true living God is not asking that we bring the sacrifice, and that's how we can tell who the one true living God is, because God, in his estimation, is not asking that we bring sacrifices, is that he will provide the sacrifice on our behalf. And so maybe one of the most gospel things we can say to ourselves and others is if you have Jesus, you are enough. And you have enough. There's a great book by John Mark Comer out called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He says that busyness is not only a sin, it's like the sin of America is busyness. It is a violent attack on spirituality. It shallows us in every regard and cuts off connection and relationship with not only horizontal relationships, but vertical relationships. We are shells of who we're supposed to be because we believe that the one who holds us is the one that is demanding a sacrifice from us. And sometimes we put Jesus on that. We put Jesus' name on that God, on that idol. And so we are restless and sleepless and who it is we think of when we wake up in the morning anxious and when we can't sleep at night, that is our God. And that is the God that's demanding a pound of flesh. And Abraham is identifying his God not that way. His God is not one that demands a sacrifice. He's one that offers a sacrifice, who gives the sacrifice. He says, this is the one that I am expecting to meet at the top of this hill. Not the one who demands the sacrifice, but the one that will give it. Is he right? Is he, is he, is he, 
true in his faith? Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Keep in mind, Abraham's 120-some years old, and Isaac's probably 20 years old. And so it's not just Abraham putting him in a full Nelson and putting him on the wood. Like, Isaac has faith too. Isaac has figured out what's going on. And it would say that all the other patriarchs in the line are going to have faith in God. But it says Isaac has the fear of the Lord. There's no way to make that correlation and causality, but this is a formative moment for Isaac. He too is getting on the altar. He is willingly carrying his wood up the hill and he's laying himself down on the altar. This is what faith has done in this family. Verse 10, then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he ends with the same exact prayer as he began with, in rain or shine, in in, uh, delivery or delay. Abraham says, here I am. Here I am. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. So we see the purpose of the test. The purpose of the test is not just for Abraham, but for God. And it's not as though he doesn't know something, but there's something valuable, at least to him, to see that faith acted out in expression. And that's why it is important, not just to just to think about faith, but to act on it, not just to think about songs, but to sing them, not just to plan things, but to execute them because faith is measured by action. And so the test, the test he knew was always in Abraham, but the, the mountain provided an opportunity for Abraham to, to walk out what was inside of him, to express the faith that he had when the stakes were high. And so, um, so he, he, is, he is, in this sense, uh, called to give the most precious thing to him and the thing that God has promised him uh, in the same way as he was asked to give uh, two chapters before Ishmael, he's asked, asked to give his son Isaac. And so I think there's an important parallel here that needs to get drawn back to the previous passage, is that the angel comes and says the same exact thing to, um, to both, in that case, Hagar, and now to Isaac. Hey, it's like, stop. Uh, it says the angel of the Lord um, calls out to the person, uh, Abraham, and then in the past, Hagar, because both of these things are tests. And, and so Abraham has learned not only to give up Ishmael, the, the son of mistake, but also um, Isaac, the son of promise. And so I think that is one of the cruxes that we can walk away with. And then there's a, a final takeaway of what's happening here is that God uh, ha, has, has formed Abraham not to just give up um, the bad stuff of his life, but also the good stuff. It's easier sometimes to give up the things that are out of control, uh, the sin places in our life, the negative things in our life, the things that are robbing, killing, and destroying of us. But I think Isaac, the reason why it's different from Ishmael is because it, it necessarily is something positive, right? Like everybody could follow God into something that they would sense would have success on the other end of it. And everybody might follow God if there was sort of just a risk there and a possibility of something good to happen. But Abraham's test is none of those things. We are finding out that the crux of the test is not will you follow God into something that you know will work or follow God into something that might work, but it's following God into something that you know won't work. It will not work. And that is, I think, one of the harder altars. And that's why you can live a life, right, of Genesis 12 to 13 to 14, where God continues to rip things out of your hands, rip bad things out of your hands and good things out of your hands. But he has not formed us in a faith where he is ripping things out of our hands. He is calling us to lay things down at his feet. And so that's really a higher test, isn't it? To have to lay something down that's working. Like everybody can lay down something that's not working. But... If you have something, like if you, if you had to let go of a relationship or you had to confess to a sin or you had to do the right thing that you knew was only going to cause you consequence and harm 
and horizontally was not going to cause you anything uh, promotional whatsoever, what, what, what kind of faith would we have in those places? I think that's what this passage is asking us. It's not just asking us about the bad things in life. It's also asking us about the things that we want to keep. But here's the deal. It's, like, it's just like every other test. To move forward, not only can we, do we need to offload um, the, the unbecoming things of our life, but we also need to let go of the things that are working. Because in that next moment, there will be a next step. There will be a next faith call. And we, have to, we will need to be prepared when that moment comes. So, the epitome of the verse is verse 13. Abraham looked up there and saw a thicket. He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on that mountain, the Lord will uh, provide it. So Abraham comes to the ultimate test and the ultimate altar. And ultimately what he finds is Jesus. Ultimately comes to the altar of the cross. And the greatest revelation that you could find in any test is that he provides, not us. And that the, the God, the one true living God, the only one, the only one who demands and, and deserves sacrifices actually provides the sacrifice that we need. And so Abraham is trying to preach to us by naming that mountain, by renaming that mountain, that when we sit down at the altars of our life, every other God that demands a pound of flesh from us, every other God will demand the sacrifice, but we will know the one true living God. We will know Jesus in the flesh because he is the only one that provides the sacrifice. He doesn't demand it. And so we are constantly, we are constantly at these altar moments and the altar moments on the long, long car ride home or um, picking up from the shrapnel of the family fight or um, needing to leave an old experience, uh, leaving to leave an old church, you know, an old belief, an old system of thought, leave, leave, you know, leaving behind an old school or an old place. Like these are the altars, these are the important moments. And then the question that I think the passage would ask us is if we were to take it home today is who are we meeting at those altars? And what do we believe that God is expecting to us? Because he is the one that provides. He is not the one that demands the sacrifice out of us. He is the one that provides sacrifices. And so this is kind of the way that we would see it in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, this is the way that we understand Jesus at altars rather than pagan gods at altars, rather than child sacrificing gods at altars. This is what Jesus is when we meet him at the altar, when we meet him at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, he died for us, so that we could live for him. He died for us, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's 2 Corinthians 5.15. And then back to the passage that I think we could rest on from the New Testament today that I think explains this passage in the, in the essence of all worship in Romans 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So what is that? What is a living sacrifice? So he's saying that Abraham went up to leave a burnt offering. But when he got there, he realized that he was not actually the one to provide the offering, that God was the one that was going to provide the offering. So who is that in Jesus? What that means is that we have come up to the altar, and in altar moments, we have decisions about which God we're going to confront or meet with when we have our altar moments, when we're getting unmade and leave the last place we were to be remade to step into the next place that we are. And, and Romans 12 is saying that at the cross, what is happening is that we are becoming a living sacrifice. Now, a living sacrifice is not the same as a burnt offering because a living sacrifice doesn't require blood. Jesus has paid once and for all for our sins, and he has atoned for all of our trespasses so that we can access, we can access him freely without sacrifice. So living sacrifice does not require blood because it doesn't require a kind of death. 
Number two, it's different from a, uh, a burnt offering because the living sacrifice continues to go. It continues to live. It doesn't, just, uh, uh, it doesn't just kind of die and then blow up in smoke. It's like the living sacrifice goes on because Jesus died for me. I live for him. So what is a living sacrifice? A living sacrifice means essentially that um, I, I'm not crawling up on the altar. I am not the one that is, that is being uh, knifed and killed and then brought to be burned before God for acceptance uh, and, 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 and absolution and atonement. I am coming to the sacrifice and I'm laying down my old self to live for myself so that I can freely live as a living sacrifice and, and, and live for others. This is what it would mean. What is true and proper worship? True and proper worship is sacrifice. And sacrifice with Jesus is that he brings the sacrifice, not me. And so now I am free and I am full to live my life as a living sacrifice continually in true and proper worship by giving myself to the church. By offering myself as a walking, talking, living, breathing, um, what would he do if he were me right here where I am kind of sacrifice um, for the world and for the church? And so it means to prefer others. Uh, being a living sacrifice would mean to be rather wronged. Being a living sacrifice would mean to be more concerned with the needs of others. This is the way that the New Testament continually talks about our obligation, uh, which is a free obligation. It's that I, I don't have to be a slave to anyone, Paul would say, but I want to be a slave, and I choose to be a slave for all men that I might win some. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. Sac- worship is, is a sense of sacrifice, but it's a different brand. When Jesus crawls on the altar, when he walks up the hill of Calvary and takes on sin on my behalf, then I no longer have to do that. He has provided for my sacrifice. But now, because he's died for me, it means I live for him. And it means as a living sacrifice with the same, um, the same pursuit, the same faith, the same trust, the same conviction, the same, um, the, the same movement and action, I am not, I'm not giving my energy and my life and my pound of flesh towards trying to be reconciled to God. I am offering myself as a living sacrifice daily for those around me. And so this is the archetypal like like the archetypal limit. It is it is saying to what extent would we be called to sacrifice? To what extent would we be called to be a living sacrifice? It's to the extent that God has laid His life down for us. And so as we serve, as we uh, do family, as we do um, ministry, as we do all of these things, we are continually be, being brought to altars. Between steps, we're being brought to altars so we can be unmade to be made again. And the picture and the vision of where we're headed, just like Abraham, is the same prayer. It's here I am. It's, what, it's whatever you would call me to do. And so I think we are in a necessary time, I think, of church, you know, in a time when we are emphasizing things like self-care, you know, and, and rest. And the significance of making sure that we are not overflowing out of emptiness. Um, and, and that is rest, I think, is a form of worship. It is worship. It's coming to the altar to be full again because I can't give away anything that he hasn't given me in the first place. But make no mistake, this walk of faith is not about self-care. It's about sacrifice. And the posture of why we're here on this earth is to be a living sacrifice that it might give somebody else what he's given to me freely. That's why we're here. That's why Romans is written. It's why, if we read it and understand it, why we're called to wake up in the morning is to offer myself as a living sacrifice. And so... We are not happenstantially just kind of serving one another and doing things when we're noticed and when it counts and serving in the places that we're gifted at as though it was some sort of fulfillment to like find my place in family or find my place in church. We're here to sacrifice. Like the church, as it continues to mature and as you and I continue to mature, like the the marking of it 
is, is not how organized it will be or how cool it will be or how relevant it will be. The church will be defined in its faith journey from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22 by when people come in, and they will, and when you encounter people that are broken, and you will, the question is, are you ready to be provided for? And from that place, are you ready to be a living sacrifice? Because it's not about reaching a dream, and it's not about fulfilling a destiny, and it's not about you know, going the direction that you thought that you wanted to go. It's about taking one step and then taking the step after that. And the posture of all of those steps are getting to the altar to see myself given away to be a living sacrifice. And so I want to just encourage us, like as a church here at City Lights, like we're here to serve. And, um, and David would say to us, like, let's not, let's not come to church and give him something that costs us nothing. Like it should cost us something. Yeah, it's like, it's supposed to be earlier than you want to get up to. It's supposed to be more committed and more consistent than you'd rather be. It's supposed to be about people you, that aren't cool or something like that, you know, like that aren't funny. That's what it's, it's supposed to be that way. Like, don't you see, like that is the, that's the whole mechanism of, of what worship is about. Because, not because I'm better, not because I will it to happen, not because I'm more benevolent than you, it's because he's provided for me. It's because he died for me that I live for him. And now I'm freer because anything that I refuse to offer up on the altar to Jesus is saying it's the higher where he's the lesser. And so I'm not free. And so any, any rich young ruler or any son or marriage or any other time or bank account, my one and only car, my one and only vacation, my one and only you know, peace of mind, anything there, that's my limit. That's my limit to which I will allow Jesus to free me to be a living sacrifice. But you were not created to be a burnt offering, you were created to be a living sacrifice. And you were created to be so, in, so enraptured by what Abraham found on that mountain and what we found on, Mount, on Calvary to be a living sacrifice. And so that is the intentional question I want us to consider even more than singing today. Our response begins with a song, but it doesn't end there. And the question will become, what is our living sacrifice this week? If you are a worshiper, if you desire to be a, a worshiper in spirit and truth and you desire to give something to the Lord that costs you something, then your act of worship will not be singing. It will be something that is hard and painful and sacrificial. That is where worship begins. It begins at the place of sacrifice. It's not a receiving, it's a sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. It's understanding his provision and pouring that out to others. And so this is an inventory question. Number one, where is your greatest sacrifice? Because where you are sacrificing, where you are willing to burn the midnight oil, where you're willing to stay up and fret and plan, where you're willing to give the blood, sweat, and tears, like that is where your worship is. That is it. It is not where we're singing. It's not where we're gathering. So where is that worship? And is that a worthy altar? And, and are, you, are you the one that is leading that decision or is that God that you are giving yourself over to the one that is leading, leading that decision? Number two, how have you tried to provide your own sacrifice because we can't give away anything that we don't have. And we need to um, ultimately come to the place of the cross to realize his death and resurrection for me that I might be able to live for him. And then lastly, this is be the, the challenge of the week, is ultimately you are here in some part to give away something sacrificial, to do something that goes out of the way from where you would usually be headed. That is what a living sacrifice would do, that he died for me, that we would live for him. Um, let's stand, and I'll have uh, the worship to, uh, band to come forward as we respond this morning. Um, but let me just pray for us. And uh, I really do want you to uh, consider what this might look like to put our faith to steps and to consider 
um, probably a place that God has already called you to be. You are probably an altar. You are probably at a place where you're more confused than you'd like to be and disoriented, more disoriented than you'd like to be. And you're probably at a place where you are being unmade, either because you have decided to go there or because he's called you there. And the question will be then, when you go to that altar on the long drive home from the event that you're at, where's the altar you would go? And what are you going to lay down? And what are you going to take with you so you can go to the next place you're going? And until then, we are always hanging on to the Isaacs and always hanging on to the Ishmaels and always hanging on to the promise rather than the promise keeper, the gift rather than the giver, and therefore are not able to be remade, full of faith, saying, here I am, whatever it is that you want. And so, Lord Jesus, as we just pause to hear a message that is so un-American, I pray that you would bring us to an altar that has a familiar voice to it. You are the only one that knows our name. You are the only one who does not come to kill, steal, and destroy, but has come to give us abundant life and life everlasting. And I thank you that you have, you are, and always will be our provider. And there's nobody in this room that needs to bring their own sacrifice and pound of flesh because you laid down your your body and your body was broken for us your blood was poured out for us. And so there's no diet and there's no extra exercise and there's no extra hour at work that can atone and can make us right with you because you've already done it. You've provided. You are the provider. You are the promise keeper. You're the one that sacrifices your son so that we don't sacrifice ours. So Holy Spirit, would you move through this church? We want to be a praying church. We want to be a church that continually sees you on the altar and moves from that place to become a living sacrifice, that you died for us, that we would live for you. And let our worship cost us something. Let us not have a worship that is only about getting us something that we already have, that we would live from that provision that we could give our lives away and give a living sacrifice worship that would cost us something. So right now, we give you permission. We say, here I am. Even in your heart right now, just say, here I am. It's a good altar. It's the right altar. It's the only altar that will make you into the, the image bearer that you are supposed to be. You can trust him with every call. You can trust him with every step. And you're not required to take 10 steps in a row, just one. And you say, here I am. I thank you that we are free and who the Son sets free is free indeed. We are not obligated to any child sacrifice or we are not obligated to any cruel and merciless God. We come to the one that has provided for us and we are secure today in your Son. And so I thank you for being on that altar. We might be living sacrifices for you. Bless your church, dwell in us richly. Call us beyond what we can ask or imagine and do on our own strength that we might run out in your provision and not grow weary trusting in you and trusting in your strength. So I thank you. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.